God is near to us when we draw near to him by trusting and obeying him. When we surrender ourselves to God, we can stop being afraid because both we and our problems belong to him. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18. For those of you that have been with us uh, for some time, we're studying the monarchy uh, in Israel and Judah. Uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had 19 kings, 19 kings. All of them evil, just to give you a little idea, eight of them were assassinated. Now, that's a great way to turn over leadership uh, in a kingdom. But if you have that many assassinations, it tells you that you're probably not in the real stable um, form of government. If we had that here, there would be a lot less people running for office. Um, <laughs> the northern kingdom survived for about 210 years. It was finally conquered by the Assyrians in 722. We are just at that date now. The southern kingdom, the last two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah, had 19 kings and one queen. Four of them really good, four of them kind of good, the rest of them worthless, right? They lasted about 345 years, just to give you a time frame. The northern kingdom survived 210 years. The U.S. is almost 250 years, so they would have already been gone 40 years. Southern kingdom lasted 345. So the good news is God puts this in the Bible so we don't have to be stuck on stupid and make all the bad decisions based on our own experience. We can actually read history, duh, and learn from other people's stupid decisions. So we don't have to be stupid, right? Just saying. All right, let's pick up the narrative in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old and he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burnt incense to it, and it was called Hushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among all those who were before him. Four, he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, and he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Here's the principle. God is near to us when we draw near to him by trusting and obeying him. God is near to us when we are near to him by trusting and obeying him. Now, the name Hezekiah means strength of Yahweh. Yahweh is obviously the covenant name of God. Hezekiah reigned as co-regent with his father Ahaz for about 14 years, 729 to 715. 
Ahaz died in 715. He was one of the wickedest kings of Judah, one of the very wickedest, he and Manasseh. His son Hezekiah took over as sole ruler of Judah in 715, and he ruled as a single ruler for 18 years until 697. 697, he took over as his son Manasseh took over as vice regent until Hezekiah died in 686. So when it says he began to rule in, uh, at age 25 and reigned 29 years, they're talking about 715 B.C. to 686. That's the 29-year reign we're talking about here. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered in 722. So by the time Hezekiah took over as sole ruler in 715, the northern kingdom has been gone about seven years already. Now, of the 20 kings in Judah... Only four of them are described as having done right like King David. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. All four of these kings were religious reformers, and only two of them, Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, were said to remove the high places. The high places, you're going to see that phrase here a lot. They were elevated locations, usually on man-made mounds or hills, mostly in rural areas, and a lot of pagan religious ceremonies took place on those high places. And they did because they felt if you were on a high place, you were closer to your God. You know, your God could hear you if you were 20 feet higher than if you were at sea level, apparently. And those pagan practices were pretty gross. You had animal sacrifices, a lot of religious prostitution, uh, sometimes child sacrifice, so it was evil, evil. And the sacred pillars in the Asherah pole, they were pagan icons, used in these pagan, perverse religious services. Most kings, even the good ones, tolerated it. It was kind of the cultural norm. And you kind of go, well, how come they tolerated it? The same reason our culture tolerates all kinds of garbage. We've gotten used to it. It is now normalized. It's sewage, but we've gotten used to the smell. So we kind of go, well, you know, it's always been that way. No, it always has not been that way. Hezekiah was a unique one in that he didn't tolerate it, and he tore him down. It also says he destroyed this brass serpent they called the Hushtan. Now remember, 700 years earlier, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, right, because they refused to enter the promised land. They disobeyed. And uh, they're wandering around, and they become complaining and grumbling against God. And so they didn't like the manna anymore. And so God sent venomous serpents into the camp and bit them. And many were bitten and many died. This was judgment. So they asked Moses to intercede for God, to God for these venomous snakes. And God told Moses, make a bronze snake, a snake out of bronze, and put it on a pole where everybody can see it. Whoever looks at the snake in faith, trusting God, will be healed. So they're healed from the venomous bite. If they'd gotten bitten and they looked at the snake in faith and obedience, God would heal them. Not because the snake had any magic, right? But because God was behind that. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, they started worshiping this bronze snake as an idol. It was kind of a religious icon, you know. This statue of blah, blah, blah has religious significance. Yeah, right. Actually, Nehushtan means that brass thing or that unclean thing. Yeah, that thing. Let's worship it, right? 
We often worship religious symbols instead of worshiping God. The church is loaded with religious icons. All, I'm not going to name names, but many, many, many religious organizations because they say it reminds us of God. Why don't you just go straight to God? I don't, need a, I don't need any help with that. God says, come, I'm right here. Come through Jesus. I'm right. You can talk to me direct. You don't need an interpreter, right? The snake was a symbol of God's grace and God's healing power. God was the reality behind the symbol. They were worshiping as an idol, so Hezekiah destroyed it. Now, his priorities show up really early in his reign. Look at 2 Chronicles 29.3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Verse 10, he says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. He knew that Judah was separated from God due to their sins. Hezekiah longed for spiritual revival, for the blessing of the Lord to rest on Judah. And Hezekiah knew that all spiritual revival or reawakening begins with cleansing from sin. God hates sin. He loves people, but he hates the sin in their life, and our sin has to be cleansed and put away through confession and repentance in order for our relationship to be restored. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I hang on to sin in my life, if I value sin more than my relationship with God, God's hearing aid doesn't work. It says God will not hear. He chooses not to respond to people who refuse to repent because he can't tolerate sin. So 2 Chronicles 29 records a whole host of things that Hezekiah did. He cleansed the temple, reopened the temple. His father Ahaz had closed it. It means for years the house of the Lord was locked. Couldn't get into it, right? The priests consecrated themselves. They offered sin offerings to atone for the sins of the nation. Then they offered burnt offerings, which symbolized complete dedication to the Lord. Then they sang praises to the God of Israel. Then they sacrificed thank offerings to God. And then Hezekiah said, you know, we need to celebrate the Passover. They hadn't celebrated the Passover in years and years and years. Remember, the Passover feast commemorated God's grace in causing the angel of death to pass over the house of the Israelites when they were in Egypt, when he judged the Egyptians and the firstborn in every house died, the angel of death passed over. So they celebrated that. And after this, it says, when they got right with God, they went throughout the entire land and destroyed the pagan altars, idols, pillars, Asherah poles, high places. So they cleaned house. If you want to follow God, if you want to be intimate with God, you've got to let him clean your house of your heart. You cannot hang on to sin and expect him to be intimate with the Lord. It won't work. God loves you way too much to tolerate the sin of cancer in your life, the cancer of sin in your life that will kill you. He's going to deal with it. So Hezekiah is described as clinging to the Lord. You know, it's interesting. I just thought of this. The athlete in the world with the strongest grip is the bull rider. This is not scripted, right? And I have not measured this, but I'm thinking, if you're on the back of a bull and you've got your right hand and you hang on to that rope, that's the only thing that keeps you on, you are hanging on to that rope for dear life. That's the picture of 
Hezekiah clinging to the Lord. It says he didn't depart from following the Lord. He didn't get distracted. It didn't say he kept some of God's commandments. He said he kept all of God's commandments. It says he drew near to God. He trusted and obeyed the Lord. And as a result of that, God drew near to Hezekiah. And he prospered. The prosperity here is not just wealth. It means he was prudent. He was wise. He was insightful. And he was successful. But Hezekiah had a problem. He did not live in a good neighborhood. There was a bully on the block named Assyria. Sargon II was the greatest ruler of the Assyrian Empire. He reigned from 722 to 705, and he vastly expanded the scope of the Assyrian Empire. If you look at the map on the screen behind me, you're going to see that Nineveh is the capital city. At one point in time, Assyria was a much smaller entity. This is the maximum scale of it. It actually went all the way down into Egypt. Nineveh is about 500 miles east of Jerusalem, so it gives you an idea of kind of the scale of what this empire was. Well, Sargon was killed in battle. He actually was a leader. You know, back in the day, leaders actually went into battle. Hard to believe, but I mean, they actually led by example. He led a lot of military campaigns to grow the empire, but he was killed in battle in 705 BC, and his son Sennacherib took over. Now, many, many times when a monarch dies, there's an internal power struggle. Who's going to rule after the monarch dies? And at that point in time, many vassal states choose to rebel. This is a good time to get out of Dodge and break free because they're occupied in fighting. So the first four years of his reign, Sennacherib is occupied with controlling Babylon, which is just to the south, about 200 miles south of Nineveh. And during that time, Hezekiah joined an alliance with Phoenicia, Philistia, and Egypt in order to resist Assyria. But most importantly, he stopped paying tribute and taxes to the king of Assyria. Now, if you stop paying your taxes to the IRS, you may get away with it for a year or two, but sooner or later, somebody will look at the records and say, we haven't heard from you in a while. We need to have a little conversation, right? Well, they did the same thing. Second Chronicles 32 says that Hezekiah was not a fool. He knew that they were going to pay him a visit if he stopped paying tribute and taxes. So he prepared for it. It says he stopped all the springs of water in the whole region around Jerusalem so that the Assyrians wouldn't have any water when they showed up to siege Jerusalem. It says he rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. He says he erected towers. He built a second wall. He made weapons. He organized the army. Here's a basic principle of life. If you expect something to occur in the future, get ready in the present. Yeah? Think that's a good idea? You know lots of people who don't think the future is ever going to happen. Believe me, it will happen, right? So if you expect it to occur, prepare. And that's what Hezekiah did. Go to verse 13, 2 Kings 18. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, King Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid 
and gave it to the king of Assyria. Here's the principle. Appeasement is based on fear and is only a temporary solution to a persistent problem. Appeasement is based on fear and is only a temporary solution to a persistent problem. This works in marriage too, folks, not just kings. It works with children. It works, I mean, it works in a lot of six sequences, right? So the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign would be 701 B.C., and that's when Sennacherib shows up in uh, Judah. Now, remember, this map shows the northern kingdom of Israel for illustration's sakes, but they ceased to exist in 722. So the northern kingdom, you got the territory there, but they're no longer a kingdom. They've been defunct for, at this point in time, uh, 21 years. So on their way to Jerusalem, the king of Assyria conquered 46 cities, Phoenicia, Philistine cities, Judean cities. As a matter of fact, every fortified city in Judah was captured, carried off 200,000 people in captivity. The only city in Judah that was not yet captured was Jerusalem, and they were uh, surrounded. King Sennacherib set up his field headquarters in Lachish. If you look at where Jerusalem is, and you go about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem on that map, Right on the border of the Philistines, you're going to see the city of Lachish. That's where his field headquarters was. Now, it's interesting. This doesn't seem fair. If you read the first eight, nine verses of this chapter, it says, Hezekiah did everything right. He was obedient. He followed the Lord. He was disciplined. He got rid of the idols. He led the people back to the Lord. There was a great spiritual revival, and he gets invaded. Wow. What's fair about this question, right? Interesting. God is going to use this Assyrian invasion, number one, to reveal the supernatural power to the world and strengthen the faith of his own people by delivering them miraculously. So you look at your life and you're going, you know, I think I've done everything right. Why does this happen? You look at Pastor Roger and you say, here's a man who has given his life 24-7. You can't believe the number of times he gets called at 2 in the morning for the Lord's service, and he winds up with bile duct cancer. And you say, this is not fair, according to whose standard? Right? Well, we're not going to judge the Lord. On the other hand, you have relatives that are in heaven and friends. I promise you, they don't believe it wasn't fair. They say, the day I got here was the greatest day of my life. You should hurry and come, right? It depends on your perspective. Why is this joint so cool? Because you don't know anything else. That's why if you saw what was really up there, we'd all want to leave. That's why he doesn't tell you a great deal about it, because you'd be useless down here for him now. So here's the problem, though. Hezekiah's done right. There's now an invasion. And now he puts his depends on and loses his cookies. He watches them conquer this whole military alliance, and he becomes frightened. And he sends words to the Assyrians. He says, I've done wrong. Mea culpa. I shouldn't have allied with those other nations. If you withdraw from Jerusalem, I will pay you whatever you demand. Now, that's a blank check you should not sign. Sennacherib said, 300 talents of silver. That's 11 tons. 30 talents of gold, that's one ton. 
a ton of gold, and 11 tons of silver. Hezekiah doesn't have the money. Because his father so took all the silver from the temple in the king's house, even cut the gold overlays from the doorways of the temple in order to pay the ransom to Assyria. Here's what happened. He was afraid, and he wanted this problem with the Assyrians to go away, but he didn't want to fight for it. He didn't want to confront the problem. He wanted to buy off the problem. He delayed the inevitable confrontation, and he paid the ransom, and they showed up anyway. And they always will. Appeasement is never a permanent solution. Never. Verse 17. The king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who all rely on him. But if you say, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Verse 35. Here's a summary statement. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Here's the principle. There's lots of them, but I'm going to count on just one. The biggest enemy in any conflict is fear. The biggest enemy in any conflict is fear. If you don't win the battle against fear, the conflict is over regardless of your enemy, right? So the Assyrians, they accept the tribute money, but they break their word and they invade Judah anyway. And they send three messengers to, to Judah, to Hezekiah, and they demand an unconditional surrender. And these three characters are titles. They're not proper names, they're titles. Tartan means general. So this was a general in the Assyrian army. Rab Cyrus means chief eunuch, and he was a high officer in Assyrian courts. And Rab Shaka, he's the chief talker here. He's the chief cupbearer. And you say, well, what's this big deal about cupbearers? Well, back in the day when you were king, many people tried to knock you off through poison. You know, so they just poisoned your food or drink. So the cupbearer was someone who tasted all your food before you ate it and tasted everything you drank before you drank it. So if somebody was going to die first, they were going to die before the king. So needless to say, the cupbearer was a very trustworthy person because the king would watch him eat and drink and go, oh, they look okay, then I'll eat, right? They didn't. You know, if they keeled over or something, obviously somebody's trying to poison them. So this was the main speaker for the king of Assyria. And they tell Hezekiah's representatives, you know, it's futile for you to fight against Assyria. You don't have a strong enough military to win. So Hezekiah must be relying on somebody else. He's rebelling against me. He says, number one, if you're relying on Egypt, that's a waste of time. 
Trusting in Egypt is like leaning on a tall reed, a bulrush reed. A bulrush is a reed that grows in the Egyptian delta. And it's kind of like a hollow bamboo. If you lean on it, you can break it. It won't support your weight, and it'll pierce your hand. And he says, if you lean on Egypt, they're not going to support your weight, which was very true. Anybody that leaned on Egypt for military support in ancient times got disappointed. They were not a very good ally. And that's true for us, too. If you lean on other people long enough, sooner or later you're going to be disappointed. People will fail you, right? Here's the really bad news. You'll fail them, too. We're humans. Ultimately, that's why only the Lord is a support that will always hold us up. However, they say, Hezekiah, if you're relying on the Lord... He's, you're going to be disappointed as well. Because Hezekiah tore down all the altars and all the high places where Jehovah was worshipped. And Rob Shaka said, God must be really angry with you. Look, you ripped up all his altars. How's he going to support you in war? Now understand that Assyria was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And they believed that each god had a limited sphere of authority and a limited sphere of geography. In other words, you had a god of the mountains and a god of the valleys. You had a god of the rain, a god of the weather, a god of the family, a god of war. So each god had a limited sphere of control. And so they said, Hezekiah, you tore the altars down to these gods, these gods with limited power. I'm not going to support you anymore. They didn't understand that the god of Israel was not a local god. He's the one and only creator God of the entire universe. And Hezekiah tore down the altars of these false gods because God told him to. So these three characters are speaking in Hebrew. And they're right outside the wall of Jerusalem. And there's lots of people inside the city on the wall listening. Now this is psychological warfare. Let's scare the population who's listening to our words into submission Maybe they'll talk Hezekiah into surrender without a fight. So the three officials of Hezekiah say, speak to us in Aramaic. Because the people up there don't understand Aramaic, just us. And the three Assyrians then, of course, shout as loud as they can in Hebrew, so everybody can hear and fear. And they paint this dire picture of this coming siege. You know, if we siege you, you're going to starve. No water, no food. By the way, if you surrender... You can come to Assyria, and we'll give you your own plot of land, and we'll give you your own, you know, I mean, it'll be a rather pleasant exile. You know, so just surrender now, and, and it'll be a good deal, which, of course, wasn't. Assyrians were cruel, cruel, tortured people on a routine basis. Then Assyria makes the mistake that costs them. They attack the God of Israel. They tell the people of Israel... Don't believe Hezekiah's promise that God's going to deliver you from us. Because the God of Israel is no stronger than any other God of any other nation that we have already conquered. When you, you know, you can almost see something in heaven go click. That, you cross the line right there. Chapter 19, verse 1. How does Hezekiah respond? When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, entered the house of the Lord. Verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, 
the prophet. Isaiah said to them, quote, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Here's the principle. When we surrender ourselves to God, we can stop being afraid because both we and our problems belong to him. When we surrender ourselves to God, we can stop being afraid because both we and our problems belong to him. You know, when you pray, you say, oh Lord, blah, 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 I've got this problem. Do you believe that God hears you? Do you believe that he, he understands that you have this problem? Do you understand that that problem now belongs to him? So why do you steal it out of his hands again? And 10 minutes later, we're worried about it. I thought we just gave it to him, right? It now belongs to him. You're a parent and a grandparent. Your child or your grandchild, when they're five years old, they come to you and they say, blah, 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 I got this problem. You say, you came to the right person. I will take care of the problem. Three minutes later, they come back and say, Papa, I got this problem. Same one. You say, I said I'd take care of it, right? God says he'll take care of it because I'll take care of you because you're my child, therefore your problems are my problems in the same way that you belong to me as well. So Hezekiah, he tears his clothes, sign of grief, covers himself with sackcloth and ashes, goes into the court of God's house. And he sends a, a, a message to Isaiah. And he says, you need to pray. Judah's situation is desperate. And he uses a phrase here that is very graphic. He says, Judah is like a woman in labor who's been in labor for hours, and she's so exhausted she cannot give birth. So she's going to die, and the baby's going to die, both. He says, there is no hope for us apart from God's intervention. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah, don't worry about the boastful words of the king of Assyria. They're only words. It's fascinating. He says, don't fear the words of the servants of the king of Assyria. And the word for servants means flunkies. It means errand boys. He says errand boys, they're, they're just talking. You know, they're trash talking. Don't pay any attention to that trash talking, right? God says, I now have got the problem. It's now mine. I'm going to deal with Assyria directly. So, exactly as prophesied, Rob Shekha goes back to the Assyrian army's headquarters at Lachish, and he finds that the king of Assyria has now got a battle with the king of Libna. Who'd have thought? Furthermore, the king of Ethiopia, who's ruling over Egypt, is now marching from the south to attack the king of Assyria. Wonder who arranged for all that, right? God's in control. So before the Assyrian army lifted their siege from Jerusalem, in order to go down to Lachish and support the Assyrian army, they send a message and a letter to Hezekiah. 19 verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of these nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, and the sons of Eden who were at Telassar? Where is the god of Hamath, the god of Arpad, the god of Seraphim, the god of Hena and Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand of all the kingdoms of, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Here's the principle. Unload your burdens on the Lord because he is your infinitely powerful, intimately personal, and ever-present God. Unload your burdens on the Lord because he is your infinitely powerful, intimately personal, and ever-present God. See, Rabshakeh now declares war on the God of Israel. He says, God is lying to you, Hezekiah, that Assyria will not conquer your land. We've destroyed multiple nations and in the past. By the way, in that era, if your army conquered your enemy's army, you would conclude that your gods were stronger than their gods. That's why you were able to conquer their enemy, Right? If their gods were stronger than your gods, they would beat you in victory. So it was really an issue of whose gods were stronger. Well, the, the Assyrians worshipped the god of their military machine. All their energies went into building a military. And they worshipped that, and they said, the god of Judah is not as strong as our military machine. They believed that god of Israel was weak and wimpy, just like all the other gods they had conquered. So Hezekiah follows the directions of an old tune called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The second verse reads, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Hezekiah physically takes this letter, this threatening document, this blasphemous letter that says, we're going to take you out, and he spreads it out before the Lord. I would encourage you to think about doing that. You have troubles, you have issues. Literally spread it out before the Lord. Bring it into God's light. Bring it to his throne. Spreads it out before the Lord. And when you do that, you receive perspective and you receive peace. 1 Peter 5, 7 says what? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So number one, you have a God who cares. That word casting literally means to roll. 
It's talking about you have a weight on your shoulders, you're carting around, you're all bent over. It says you come next to Jesus and you roll the weight on his shoulders. He's got big shoulders. He can handle your weight. No problem. So that's what casting. It literally means to roll that weight onto the Lord's shoulders. Philippians 4, 6 gives us a command. Be anxious for nothing, but in by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made unto God. And the promise is the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard you from what? Worry, doubt, anxiety, anger, sleepless nights, drinking, fighting, all sorts of stupid things that the world does when they get anxious and uptight, right? God didn't promise you not to have storms. He says, my peace will carry you in the middle of the storm. That is our confidence. So God says, roll these problems onto, your, onto my shoulders, and we often say, yeah, 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 but I don't know that you can handle it. God, this is a really big problem. Matter of fact, I don't have a solution. He says, that's exactly why you should give it to me. Corey Ten Boom once asked a profound question. I've been thinking about this one. She says, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Prayer is designed to be a moment-by-moment-by-moment-by-moment conversation with Jesus. That you talk to him how often? All the time. Where we should always be talking with him, right? Pray without ceasing. He'll guide and direct us step by step by step by step by step. Prayer is not supposed to be a spare tire. My ship is going down, and I better send out one SOS. There was a, it may be apocryphal, but I thought it was true, story about a woman who was told the ship was sinking, and it was time to pray, and she says, oh my, has it come to that? (laughs) Prayer is not the last thing we do, it should be the first thing we do, right? So Hezekiah knows that the God of Israel is the God who created the heavens and the earth, he rules over the human race, and he says, God, take action against the Assyrians because they have dishonored you. This ain't about me. This is about you. Deliver us from the hand of the Assyrians. What's his motivation in asking for deliverance? Not his own comfort. He says, deliver us from the Assyrians so that the whole world will know that the Lord God of Israel is the God of glory. You know, I've been asking that the Lord, I know you have too, will heal Pastor Roger. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified through his life or through his death. Either one. But I've been praying that the Lord will receive more glory by healing him. Because the Lord will always do what brings him glory. The most glory. I don't know what that is. But he does. So we surrender that to the Lord. He uses two fascinating words here. He uses the word Lord and he uses the word God. And there are two, he's talking about the same person with two descriptions. The word Lord, all caps in your Bible, is the word Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H. It's the tetragrammaton. We really don't know how to pronounce it. It's the proper personal name of God. And the first time that word shows up is when Moses sees God in the burning bush. And he says, who am I going to go back to Israel and tell him who sent me? And he says, 
I am who I am. It, it, it's the conjugate to mean to be. He's taught, he says, Moses, I am the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, unchanging God. I have no beginning and I have no end. And I am, this is my name. This is my covenant relationship with you. This is my personal name, Israel, that you're going to call me, YHWH. This is the covenant name. So Hezekiah says, Lord, reveal yourself as God. And the word God here is Elohim. Elohim means creator, sovereign, complete authority, supreme power, might and power. He says, I want the world to know that the God of Israel, the personal covenant God of Israel, is not just a local God. He is the supreme creator, sovereign of the entire universe. And this is our job as Christians. We have this personal relationship with the Lord, Jesus Christ. He's not just a subjective feeling that makes us feel good. He, in actuality, is the Lord God, the creator, the king of the universe. And we say God is both infinite on one hand and personal on the other hand, and we are to live out that reality for the world to see. And that's our prayer as well, that the world would know what? That the Lord Jesus Christ is God, who became man and retained his godhood completely in order to provide redemption. I guess my voice is doing okay. Right? All right. How does God describe himself? Isaiah 42.8. If you want to read a passage that will bring you perspective on what's going on, I want you to read Isaiah 40 to 48. Eight chapters. Eight chapters. God describes himself. They'll give you a couple of references. Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, all caps. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. <clears throat> Beside me there is no God. Verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained their host. So we serve the creator God, the God of glory, the God of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth, and he is jealous for his glory. Don't worry about what people say about you. Very much, they need to worry about what they say about your God because he will defend his honor and his glory in his time and his way to accomplish his purposes. And that's why we say, like Jesus, thy will be done. So Hezekiah's motive for praying for deliverance is that the whole world would come to know that God is just not a local deity, their buddy, God, Israel's God is the creator and ruler of the universe. How does Isaiah respond to this letter? Actually, Hezekiah is praying, and the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, go tell Hezekiah this, quote, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Israel, I have heard you. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, quote, He will not come to this city, or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield, or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city, 
to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Verse 35. And it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, that Aramalek and Shaharazar killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Eshardad and his son became king in his place. Here's the principle. God answers our prayers so that everyone will know that he alone is God. God answers our prayers so that everyone will know that he alone is God. I said everyone because that includes you and me. Sometimes we forget who we're dealing with. We say, God, you deal with that problem over there. God says, I'm going to answer your prayer so that you know that I'm the God of glory. Because we forget. We forget. The world doesn't know him, but we do know him, and we forget that he alone is God, and God ultimately acts to reveal himself as the one true God. Isaiah 48, 11. Why does God do what he does? Sorry to tell you, but you're not the reason he does what he does. <laughs> you're not the center of the universe. Ah, sorry to break it to you. God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. Or how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? There is only one God and he will not be treated as common and ordinary by human creatures. And God says, Hezekiah, because you prayed to me for deliverance like a child to your father, right? I will answer you. You didn't go to somebody else. I will defend Jerusalem for my sake. Assyria had told Hezekiah, don't let God lie to you. That's calling God a liar. You want to get God irate and punch his character. Assyria had said the God of Israel, he's just like all the other gods of the nations that Assyria had conquered. Well, the creator and ruler of the universe, the God of Israel, was going to demonstrate to everyone that he alone is God. That night, an angel of the Lord, after dinner, one just showed up and killed 185,000 soldiers. And there's, there's lots of commentary saying, well, it was this virulent Plague spread by mice. You know, we're looking for human rationale. Here's what will get your attention. In the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time when it says, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, most of the time refers to the pre-incarnate Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. And the world thinks that Jesus is um, a baby, still hanging on a cross, powerless, it appears to say here that you took out 185,000 people like that. They were not dead by human hands, and there was no visible wounds. And it was invisible, because it said that nobody discovered it until morning. They woke up, and there's 185,000 corpses. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, you're already dead, right? It was clearly supernatural, clearly. And it must have terrified the Assyrians. The text is very economical. It simply says, Sennacherib packed up his troops, went back home, departed for Nineveh. And it says, when you read the passage, it says, it came about as he was worshiping. It doesn't give you a time frame when all this happened, the last verses. 
It actually occurred 20 years later in 681 BC. He was worshiping in the temple of his god. He was assassinated by two of his sons. He had 11 sons, which is a problem, right? Multiple wives. And two of the 11 assassinated him, and then he escaped to Ararat about 300 miles north of Nineveh. And history tells us they assassinated him because they were upset with their dad because he had chosen his youngest son, Esharhaddon, to be his heir and not them. Now, if you talk about family feud, this kind of takes it to another level, right? What I want to point out is, though, God always keeps his word, but not on your calendar. He said to Isaiah 20 years before, he's going to go and fall in his own land. He didn't say when. 20 years later, he falls in his own land. He's assassinated in the temple, right, of his false god. No matter what the conflict is, no matter what the odds of bad things happening in your life, no matter how impossible your present situation is, one thing you know, you can count on God to keep his word. He always has, he always will. He just doesn't operate on your schedule or my schedule. He operates on his schedule. And his calendar is always perfect. And how he deals with us is always what we need at that moment. Many, many times the Lord deals with him. We go, man, I don't understand it. He says, I'm God. I'm planning for eternity. And we say, well, why don't you do this this afternoon? Because it would make my life easier. He says, no, I'm planning for seven generations from now. You've got great, 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 great grandchildren. And if I don't do this today, this won't happen 165 years from now. And you're going, oh, I never thought of that. And the Lord says, yeah, there's a lot of things you haven't thought of. Right? I'm God. I'm eternal. I always do what's in my children's best interest because I know what I want to accomplish throughout the world. We always think it's about us. I've thought on multiple occasions that Pastor Rogers' illness may have a lot more to do with other people than not him. If you want to pray, pray that God will teach you what you're supposed to learn through that. By the way, he's not the only one that's sick in our church. We have many, many, many family friends here in our church that are sick. You pray for their healing. You pray for the Lord's hand on the life. But you also pray, Lord, what is it you want me to learn from this given situation? Don't waste their pain by being uninterested. Ask the Lord to teach you. There's no problem that we face, there's no problem that any of us face that's bigger than the God of the Bible. That's why Hezekiah is commended because his faith was steadfast in the Lord God regardless of the odds. And he simply spread his problem out before the Lord and said, Lord, if you don't help, if you don't deliver us, we have no hope. We cannot depend on ourselves. And the Lord always responds to humble humility. Okay, let's summarize. Point one. God is near to us when we draw near to him by trusting and obeying him. You cannot be intimate with God and hang on to sin in your life. If you want to be intimate with the Lord, you need to confess the sin, repent of it, ask God to deal with it, and start obeying him. Number two, appeasement is always based on fear, and it's always temporary. Sooner or later, you're going to have to confront the reality of the situation, and God will give you the ability to do that. Number three, the biggest enemy in any conflict is fear, and God's people do not need to fear. 
Matter of fact, we're commanded not to fear. And if our faith is in the Lord God of glory, then we do not need to fear. If our fear is anything less than God, then we will fear. Because this world's a big place. And we know, we look and we go, man, I can't handle that. And the Lord says, well, of course you can. But I'm your father. Bring it to me. I'll take it. Number four, when we surrender ourselves to God, and we surrender our problems to God, we can stop being afraid because both we and our problems belong to him. Number five, unload, unweight, roll, cast your burdens on the Lord because he is your infinitely powerful, intimately personal, and ever-present God. He's not only all-powerful, he's also all-loving. And lastly, the reason God answers prayer, number one, he does love you. He answers prayer ultimately for his own glory. He wants to reveal to you and to everyone around you that he alone is God. We talked a couple weeks ago about Andre Crouch wrote a song, If I Never Had a Problem, I Would Not Know That God Could Solve Them. So sometimes the Lord gives you problems so he can solve them so your faith grows. And you say, God is a lot bigger than I thought. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't have a problem I couldn't handle. Right? Okay. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Lord, my voice held up. Next week, uh, read ahead, we'll be in uh, the very end of Hezekiah's life. And we'll take a look at decisions that people sometimes make toward the end of their life, which applies to all of us, some good, some bad. So there'll be another set of lessons. So thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. Uh, love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.